0: Jungle Boogie. Down with the boogie. Jungle Boogie. Pegit up. Jungle Boogie. Down with the Jungle Boogie. Jungle Boogie. Get up. with the Jungle Boogie. Jungle Boogie. Down with the boogey. Jungle Boogie. This is absurd. I refuse to jungle boogie. I said I will not jungle boogie. No, no jungle boogie. I can't jungle
1: boogie. Jungle boogie. Jungle boogie. I can't jungle boogie. Jungle boogie. Jungle boogie. Jungle boogie. boogie.
0: Muppets? Muppets in the morning. I love it. Good morning, everybody. It's a great day to celebrate recovery. How y'all doing? Uh, You can do better than that. Come on, let's get coffee kicking in. How are you doing? That's what I'm talking about. Here on Survivor Island, we survived day one. And i tell you, if you enjoyed day one, you are going to absolutely love day two. A couple of housekeeping items uh, to make you aware of. Number one, be sure and visit the bookstore, the Internet Cafe, and the charging station in Independence One. I always thought the charging station was where they had the coffee out there, but I guess I was mistaken. Uh, The charging station, the Internet Cafe, uh, and the bookstore in Independence One. And I hope you've all had the opportunity to use the conference app. And if you haven't used the app, if you haven't set it up, if you need some help, please go to the registration desk. They will be glad to help you out and get you all set up. Uh, You can use the app to complete your conference evaluation. And we recommend that you, you get that done. So download the app. It's really, really easy to use. It's something we're doing new this year. And I'm sure we'll be doing it in years to come. It's absolutely amazing. And the third thing, of course, there's still time to buy raffle tickets. There are some great prizes. And if you look around, there's a couple of people with their hands up in the air. They're not doing calisthenics. They're selling tickets. Uh, And you are going to have a chance to win big today here on Survivor Island. Day two of the 45th annual TAP Conference officially underway. Please say a good morning to your island and conference co-chairs. Ellen Horst and Keith Lyles. Good morning, everybody.
2: Thank you. Hi, good morning. Let me get my glasses ready. Okay. Um, Stephen Momeritz calls himself an opioid orphan which is a child who has lost one or both parents to to the opioid crisis, whether it's to rehab, prison, or death. Part of Stephen's path to healing in his plan plan to help other kids in the same situation, at Warrior Jungle, Stephen found a community that cares. From a young age, Stephen loved to climb, but when he was 10 years old, his carefree childhood crumbled when he learned his mother was addicted to opioids. As a result, his grades dropped, he missed school, and while his mother was often too high to function, he was forced to fend for himself, learning to cook his own meals and get himself to school. His mother ended up in prison, and Stephen moved in with his family, with his father and step family.
3: During that time, Stephen was introduced to Warrior Jungle which is a gym with a positive therapeutic focus. He developed a bond with its owner, who helped Stephen grow in confidence and independence through the in-house obstacle course of endurance. Stephen formed a GoFundMe account to help other opioid orphans find their outlet for their emotions, but in a healthy way by attending an eight to 10 week long session at the Warrior Jungle. He hoped to inspire others to overcome their obstacles by finding their passion, purpose, and a path for true happiness. Please
4: watch the video. Hi everyone, Steven Montmartz here. I wish I could be there with you at the TAP conference today, but I'm scheduled to attend a golf fundraiser here in Green Bay. We are working hard to raise funds for a great cause. Here's a little about me. I'm 15, I compete as a Ninja Warrior and I'm a running back for my high school football team. As you probably know, football is a big part of life here in Green Bay, as it is in Texas. I'm proud to say that we have that in common. It's unfortunate, however, that we also share the burdens of the opioid crisis. I'm here to talk about the children left behind by their parents' addiction. Children who lost a loved one to inpatient rehab, a prison sentence, or an overdose death. No one really talks about the children left behind, or the financial hardship losing a parent has on those left to care for these children so I felt I needed to speak up and help make a difference in their lives. The mental and emotional toll of addiction can be devastating to a child's development. I know this firsthand. When I was 10 years old, I discovered my mother, the person I loved most, was addicted to heroin. I spent month after month of the next three years in behavioral therapy. If she slipped up or lied, my behavior would change and my grades would drop. After three years, I came to realize that my mother's timeline for healing from her addiction was not the same as my timeline from healing from her addiction. I decided I just wanted to be happy again. That was when my stepmom found something for me to be passionate about. She found a newly built gym in Green Bay called Warrior Jungle. The first day opened, I went to a class and I never looked back. I found a place where I could have fun and be happy. Most importantly, it was a place where I could heal. I found a community of people who supported me and I found mentors to look up to. In August of 2018, we started a GoFundMe page called Help Steven Mentor Opioid Orphans. In between football and ninja training and competitions, I did interviews with local TV stations and voiced our message on social media. We soon raised $1,000 to sponsor children for ninja classes at Warrior Jungle. Over the summer, we provided sponsorship for three children at Warrior Jungle. We have some funds available to enroll more children this fall, and we don't plan on stopping there. Since I started this campaign, I've had so many people reach out to me from across the United States. I'm so grateful for all the support I've received. I want to thank the Texas Association of Addiction Professionals for recognizing my efforts and for awarding me with their Grant and Aid Award. I want to thank my father, stepmother, family, and friends for the never-ending support. I would like to thank my ninja coaches, the ninja community, and I also want to thank Drew Knopp for being my mentor. Without his mentorship and him providing a space for my passion, I don't know where I would be today. This grant will help so many opioid orphans deal with the loss of their parent. By helping children find something to be passionate about, we can help them find an easier path towards healing. Thank you.
2: And we've awarded him this year the grant and aid check for $1,000. If you'd like to also... Help, you can go to his GoFundMe page. Thank y'all.
5: Good morning, everyone. How are y'all today? Y'all super excited to be here? Day two, day two. I know you're passionate. So, um, I wanted to share a little bit. Y'all saw Lavelle come up earlier and speak about the Political Action Committee and the tickets that we're selling to support what we do. Um, Sherry Layton is going to come up in just a few moments, and she's our legislative guru and also our president-elect for TAP right now. So she'll be taking office tomorrow. So she's going to come on up and explain a little bit about why it's so important for you to support our political action committee. I think that a lot of people don't understand what the raffle is for, what we're doing, and so I think that she can explain a little bit more about that. I'm Jamie Schmidt, by the way, and so um, come on, Sherry. Jamie does a great job. You just needed a little intro.
6: Good morning. Um, our political action committee is specifically to tap its and it is uh, it helps us to support candidates who support our issues. And so um, we have been able in 2018 we actually gave uh, contributions to eight different um, to eight different representatives or senators, and in some of the cases, for one example, for Price, a representative from Amarillo, he chaired the Select Committee on Mental Health in 2016 and he chaired the Select Committee on Opioids and Substance Abuse in 2018. So he was a key person that um, a lot of our legislation that was passed. Uh, Frank talked yesterday about a House bill. Oh gosh, I'm not even going to try to remember the number. Uh, the House bill that allowed for Medicaid reimbursement for peer recovery support services, 14 House Bill 1486. Thank you very much. Um, you know, he he wrote that bill and he he championed that bill to get passed. Um, this year we had several legislators who championed a budget increase to allow for increased rates for state-funded facilities. Uh, if you go all the way back to 1991, it was the efforts of TAP. that that created the LCDC anyway. Um, This organization actually was key in writing that legislation that created a license for chemical dependency counselors. We're one of the first states in the country that had a license for chemical dependency counselors. So we're working behind the scenes continually to get support legislatively for the issues that are important to us. Um, and you know, being able to make contributions—we don't make big contributions. We're not a big player. You know, we $250 to eight people, $250 each. They didn't have to split the $250. $250 um, as a contribution, but it just—it's one way that we can say thank you for for supporting the work that we do, supporting each of us as the professionals that we are. Because as you know, healthcare is a really, really big—you uh, know, it's an ocean relatively speaking and mental health care behavioral health care is is a pond and and we're a little tiny stream in that process as substance use disorder professionals and so we don't have um, we're a small group relatively speaking and we need our champions to work for us and we're fortunate that we have some and the political action committee allows us to support those people Um, the prizes for this uh, for this raffle we have the uh, there's a the two night stay including breakfast each day at this hotel that is one of the prizes. Then uh, the hotel donated that prize to us. A second prize is a 32 inch uh, TV, and the third and fourth prizes are registration for the NADAC 2020 annual conference, which will be held in um, National Harbor, Maryland, which is. Just right across the river from Washington DC and it will be um, the our advocacy and action conference will be attached to that so there's two opportunities to win that registration that you do have to be present to win but the drawing will be held tomorrow morning directly after the opening keynote address right outside there in the foyer so um, please support the pack the tickets are $5 each or $20 for 5 we have to. We do have to get your information. You can't just hand us a twenty dollar bill. Although we'll we'll take your twenty dollar bill as soon as you give us your information, but for legal purposes uh, to contribute to a political action committee, you have to fill out this little yellow sheet of paper. So we'll ask you to do that. We'll be glad to take your money, and we can take your credit card um, as well. You can also buy tickets at uh, across from the tap table across from the registration desk or at the registration desk with a credit card. And then there's several of us that are going to be available in here for the next five minutes uh, to to sell you tickets. So thank you very much. Thank you, Sherry.
5: Thank you, Sherry, very much. Um, also, how many of you are TAP members? Raise your hand. Woo! Oh my gosh, that's amazing. Awesome. If you want to join while you're here, it's $50 off. And you can um, register up at the front in the registration area across from the registration table. We have a tap table there. It's right beside the NADAC table. If you're confused about the, the association, NADAC is the National Association of Addiction Professionals. We are the Texas, the, the, um, the chapter in the Texas area. Some, we're the largest, I think, right, Sherry? We're the largest, um, taps larger than any other state with membership of NADAC. Oh, California's beating us, so we need more members. Um, so come on over and um, just get a little more information. There's a lot of webinars that you can also attend online through NADAC, and those are all free if you're a member. So please come on by and just talk to us. So I'm excited to announce our keynote speakers today. Um, the presentation, Opioid Use Disorders, How to Effectively Treat using, cu- using with Courage, Choice, and Collaboration. We have three speakers today. Um, Dr. James Langebier. He is a PhD who is a professor of of emergency medicine and biomedical informatics at the University of Texas Health Science Center. He is trained as a cognitive scientist and a a clinical researcher and focuses on emergency and addiction medicine. He is an associate member of the American Society for Addiction Medicine, a fellow in the American College of Healthcare Executives, and the national chairman of the American Heart Association Ambulatory Quality Committee. Dr. Langebier developed a national clinical trial for opioid use disorder called Houston Emergency Opioid Engagement System, HEROES. So that's an awesome name. Um, he is the author of nearly 100 journal articles, including the Journal of Addiction Medicine, Annals of Emergency Medical medicine and pediatrics so we're excited to have you here our second speaker is also a doctor Andrea Yatsko she is a PhD in CADC certified alcohol and drug counselor yay and received her doctorate of philosophy in criminal justice from Sam Houston State University her undergraduate work at the University of Arizona focused on psychological and sociological predictors of deviant behavior she spent four years counseling incarcerated populations within the state and county correctional facilities in Massachusetts and spent a year working with families and youthful offenders in the state of Vermont. She is a previous adjunct professor with Becker College and taught curriculum in undergraduate forensic psychology and is currently employed by the University of, of Texas Health Science Center in Houston. She's also working with HEROES and has published in peer-reviewed journal articles, uh, including criminal justice review and child abuse and neglect. Her research interests include substance use disorders and addiction, intimate partner violence, corrections, criminal psychology, and criminological theory. And then several of us met Jessica Yeager at the Texas Recovery Initiative uh, the last time that we had one. She's a national and state certified recovery support specialist. She has won numerous awards for her work with individuals who have suffered from opioid use disorder, and we're so excited to have you guys here, so come on up.
7: Yes, I think so, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, is my mic working? Okay, great, it sounds like it is. So, thank you for the introduction, thank you for having us here at this great conference. It's, um, when we accepted the invitation, I didn't know it was gonna be so big. There's a lot of you out there, so that's great to see. How many of you are from Houston? Do we have any Houstonians? Okay, good. We have a fair number, maybe 20%, I guess that's representative. We're going to talk a little bit about what we've done in Houston. And in Houston, prior to a couple years ago, it's going to be like most communities around the country, where we had to wait for people with opioid dependence and other kinds of drug dependence to come to us. We wait for them to show up into treatment. And in Houston, we wanted to flip that model. We wanted to do something different. We wanted to find them and bring them into treatment. That's what HEROES is really about, Houston Emergency Opioid Engagement System. So these were the objectives from what we submitted. I'm not going to spend any time on them. All of these things we're going to cover, though, in the course of the next three presentations. It's going to be myself, followed by um, Jessica, followed by Andrea Yatsko. So all of you, I'm sure, are seeing all the death data that's coming out on opioids. We specifically try to focus on opioids. And there's a lot of talk about CDC saying, Possibly the numbers are decreasing in 2018. We might have made a small dent. But I want to point you to the Texas data. This is data from 2014, I believe. Kind of hard to see even for me, so it's probably harder for you. But 2014 through 2017, I normally don't keep the regression coefficients on slides, but I just wanted to point them out to you, how to read them. So the first one is, on the very top are prescription opioids, and then the bottom uh, line is from illicit opioids or heroin, and what I wanted to point out, and when you add them together, that's total deaths that's occurring, and those are months on the bottom, every month of the year. I just wanted to point out that we're averaging, as you can see, somewhere between, look at the far low uh, end in 2014, 40, and we're about up to 60 if you follow the trend line, and then when you look at prescriptions, it's even higher, and I kept the equation on the top just so you can see, just so you know how to read these if you don't. The Y equals, you know, the formula, basically it starts at 65 deaths on the very top, but we're adding about half of an extra person are dying every single month over the last three years, or four years, 2014, 15, 16, and 17. And on the bottom from heroin, we're we're losing about a third of a person additional every month. So this epidemic is not going away, no matter what people say. Even if 2018 turns around and slightly dips down, which we're hearing it might, that's not happening in Houston, though. We have 2018 data from Houston to show that it's not. So I point out the national landscape. This is what we're facing. This is what you're probably each facing in your own community. We, we did some research, and it was published in the Journal of Addiction Medicine just a few months ago. You can find it online right now, uh, where we looked at the relationship between treatment capacity and opioid-related deaths. And so we tried to look at the difference between the need and the supply, the capacity to treat. And what we found, this was using the, the, what I'm showing you on this slide is 2016 data. But 40,000 opioid-related deaths in 2016, we had 12,500 total treatment programs. And by treatment, we mean both behavioral and medical, residential, detox, everything, 12,500. And that's not a lot. Texas, our problem here in Texas, we had the absolute lowest number of treatment providers per capita of any state in the nation. So we lead in that regard. So that's great news. This is, this is something we got to do a lot more about. And you can see it's it's down on the whole southeast coast. We're all really bad at this. It's something we need to do. Um, and then you can see just we did it here by county. So you can see the counties that really stand out And we have a lot more level of detail. If y'all are interested, you could shoot me an email. I'm happy to share you the details for your specific area, but um, this is a problem. And in Houston, our opioid-related deaths are going up. So we actually had more deaths in 2018 in Houston than we did in 2017. This is the only place we actually have 2018 data because the state and the feds haven't released it officially. We know that Narcan in our community in Greater Houston, just using Houston Fire Department emergency medical services data, Narcan was administered 1,200 times. So that's a lot of overdoses. Of course, sometimes we administer Narcan and it's not actually for uh, an an opioid overdose, but uh, at least somewhere between 50 and 60% of the time, it turns out it is. So we had a lot of overdose and a lot of deaths in Houston. Just one thing, I'm sure everybody is familiar with Narcan. Is everybody familiar with Narcan? You've probably seen it. People are handing it out for free. But just um, real quick, life-saving tool, life-saving intervention, not only something that if you went to our hospital in Houston Memorial Hermit Hospital, if you come in and you're having an overdose, first thing they're going to do is they're going to give Narcan. And the great thing about it is many times in the ED, these really fancy interventions occur that we could never do at the house. This is something we could do at the house. This is something every one of us should have, and especially those of you in this community. We all need to have one of the three approved forms of of naloxone. And it really, you know, the the good thing is there's no ill side effects from this. There's been a couple studies that have been looking at are there respiratory breathing problems afterwards when they're administered, and there might be slight. There's no otherwise negative if you gave this to somebody and it turns out it wasn't an opioid-related overdose. Again, it's the thing to do, so I just want to spread that word as our harm reduction message here. So that leads us into how we got where we're at. Treatment capacity alone is insufficient. We know that because we don't have enough treatment capacity, but even if we did, we're still seeing a rise in opioid-related deaths, and we're still seeing a rise in the number of people that are becoming dependent on some kind of drug. We're having an increase in, in deaths over time, again, even if that curbed a little in 2018, What we were facing in this community, and I know you all are facing it in your community, is this has always been my struggle in my my years of uh, living in Houston and trying to, to develop really good interventions. There's not a lot of coordination between people. So you might be at a private facility, and you might work really well with a neighboring residential facility, but we don't see that well when you look across an entire system of care, and especially when it comes to what we're doing, which we're going to talk about Across the medical community, the criminal justice community, including police and courts, the public health and the health departments, and the other first responders like fire department and emergency medical services, there's not a lot of, I don't know if we want to say there's competition, but it doesn't feel like there's actual coordination, and so we face that in our own community. And our belief going into this and how I originally started it was that why wait for an independent an individual to come to us, why don't we go to them? And we've said, why don't we start at an earlier point? Why don't we use an overdose, a high-risk user, why don't we intervene a lot earlier rather than wait for them? And an overdose represents this point where people might be ready and willing to change their behaviors because they went through this very traumatic event. That was our theory. So our hypothesis was, because it, we are set up as a national clinical trial by the way, so I should say that, we're a community program, but we're established as a national clinical trial. So everything we do, we're recording, we're collecting really good data on so we could publish our findings and our outcomes so that we can all learn. But our hypothesis here was that immediate intervention, outreach, and comprehensive follow-up initiated post-overdose could be effective at getting people, finding people, bringing them into treatment, but then most importantly, retaining them in treatment. So those are our, our key outcomes. So our hero's model is, based on this theory, sometimes it's called in social work or public health communities, critical time intervention, you might have heard. Uh, it's based on that theory of critical time. Let's Let's find individuals that might be ready and willing versus waiting for them to show. Let's coordinate across the community. Let's bring people together. Let's not try to be a solo treatment provider sitting in the middle of the largest community in the state of Texas. We wanted to have care coordination. We definitely wanted to have partnerships across the community, so we work with emergency medicine physicians, because the ED is an entry point across the city, also with emergency medical services. We wanted to have a quick response team that could then go out, and Jessica Yeager is going to talk to you um, next about part of our outreach efforts, our quick response team that goes to an individual's home and how that goes. And then we wanted to use expert screening, brief intervention, referral to treatment. We wanted to go, we wanted to talk to people, we wanted to make sure that we were talking to the right person, help them recognize their own issues, and then through motivational interviewing, try to engage them and say, do you, wanna, do you want help, are you interested, are you looking for help? We have something that we could do. So this is our more comprehensive model, it's not completely comprehensive, we have gaps and we always are wanting to learn, so we are we're um, wanting to learn from you two what other things that could be built in, we can't do everything though, we're funded basically only on research dollars, so we are a small, lean organization, but our model was based on this, four, four cornerstones, one, behavioral counseling, so we want to do We wanted to make sure that we had licensed chemical dependency counselors and other forms of behavioral counseling and that when we identify people that we could actually provide that. We wanted to make sure that we had peer, on the right hand side, peer support services. The peer model is, as we have an article about to come out, the peer model is the future. the peer recovery specialists are the thing that is getting people engaged and retained in treatment more than anything else when you look at it on a statistical level. So, we're seeing a lot of that. So, we wanted to make sure we include peer support services. So, Jessica will talk about that. The top level, the top one, Dr. Yadsko is going to speak about on behavioral counseling. Down on the bottom, we wanted to have this quick response team. We happen to use a paramedic and a peer recovery coach. It, some communities, we saw in Massachusetts, they, they have. Uh, This same kind of concept, they send public health people out. Um, We just want to use data that we get and we want to go to an individual's home and we want to do good. So that's our quick response. And then the final thing on the left is we want to use the emergency department not only for a, a screening tool to find people and to bring them in to care, but we also wanted to rely on emergency medicine physicians, those guys that work in an ED that know best how to treat someone in a very acute incident. And so we, different in our model than many models, we're, because we're not an outpatient-based treatment, we are an on-the-streets bring-people-in treatment program. We have six uh, DEA Data 2000 waivered emergency medicine physicians who are basically on standby for us every single week. We are the first community that is really pushing this through, Memorial Harmon is the largest teaching hospital, um, and we were able to get a number of their physicians really engaged and want to do this, and so so far we have six, we have another two people that are doing the DEA waiver training, so we will be up to eight soon, but we have six that are waiting for us to call to say, we just found somebody, they're coming in at 10 o'clock, who can meet with this person? So we're using an emergency medicine physician to talk to them, and get them initially started on medication-assisted treatment because we believe medication-assisted treatment is necessary to get people through the critical times. And so we, um, that's, all these four things really separate us from most, most programs that I think you'll see, uh, especially the use of the ED, quick response, and peer support services. So this is what our model looks like. We also partner with the Houston Police Department in the narcotics division. So on the top left, we have law enforcement. A lot of times people are going out, as you, I'm sure you're aware, not most people that, that have possession of drugs don't actually make it into a jail for lots of good reasons. And in Houston, they're being much more proactive than I think they had in the past as a conservative city. And so there's a lot of attempt to find alternative ways to get people into treatment and not get them into the criminal justice system. So partnering with the narcotics um, division of HPD, we work with them closely and they do warm handoffs with us with people that they've talked to who they otherwise might have brought in and said we have an opportunity to work with you and help and then they hand them one of our heroes cards and then we call them, and we start the process. So that's the first responders, the law enforcement, and we're trying to expand that to more law enforcement. Um, HPD is, is 5,500 officers across the city, so it's a pretty big police force. The second one in the middle on the left is EMS. So we work with Houston Fire Department right now, uh, emergency medical services, 3,800 paramedics that go that are out there. Uh, we rely on their data as well, so they help us to tell us where they responded to an overdose. We are in confidential, um, HIPAA compliant, you know, contractual things to do this. That takes a lot of setup on your end. So I wanted to say, if you're if you want to do these first two things in your own community, you have to work through all the legal processes, which, as you know, is extensive when you're sharing this kind of information. But once you get it in place, it's really effective. So we get. All of the police and then all of the EMS rescues where it involved a Narcan administration in the middle and then we do the same thing. We go to an individual's homes with a quick response team and we start the whole process. And then we also have another entry point though too is community providers. So a lot of people in Houston, including the Council on Recovery, um, smaller clinics, courts, or people see us on the news, they can just Pick up the phone and call us and say, "I have somebody, or it's myself. Or I have my brother. Can they come in?" And we're that we're trying to be that those people that actually provide a home, an opportunity for people to to get connected into to good, solid treatment. We're completely free, so barrier uh, cost and insurance is not a barrier. We don't charge anything for any of the the things that you saw: the emergency medicine, physician, the counseling, the peer support, nothing. So once they come in and they enroll in our HEROES program, we actually do make them formally enroll because, again, we're a national clinical trials. So th- there's enrollment paperwork, you know, tell them about the risks and all of the different things. Then they're going to get the same-day initiation of Suboxone. We're either going to give them the first dose sublingually of, of Suboxone or we're going to give them a prescription. They're going to get same-day call by one of our certified peer recovery support specialists and then they're going to get started right away on behavioral counseling. And then once they get through that first couple days, they, we're, we give them about a week to two weeks script. Then we talk about ongoing maintenance, medical treatment, and about half of, little over half of, of the people that come into the program are able to stop after, do stop, and uh, don't go on for ongoing maintenance treatment. And about uh, 55% continue on, and we, we put them in one of the community providers. We don't continue care for the medical uh, medication-assisted treatment. So that's our model. That's what we do. Um, here's our results. So we started this in April of 2018. It took us about a year to get the planning, the, all the city and hospitals and all this to agree on all of the contractual terms on data sharing. But in April 2018, we enrolled patient number one. And right now, we have a little over 400 patients. We cannot keep up with the volume. Literally, we will get some days, we'll get five to six people calling and in our office to enroll every day. We set this up, and we didn't think that we'd have this many people that didn't have a way to get into a treatment program because we didn't know. I mean, we really did not know how prevalent this was going to be in Houston. So 400 plus, I think we're at like 410 patients as of today. Most importantly, our key, out, our primary outcome, as we call it, is how long can we keep them um, engaged in active treatment and, and drug-free abstaining. And 85% have been retained in treatment for more than 30 days, and it drops a little bit down to 80% when you look at it over 90 days. And in 90 days, based on our hypothesis, our, our goals of this program, we're trying to retrain the brain. We're trying to give people an opportunity to get into better housing, better environment, all those kinds of things. So we chose short-term outcomes. We also have a 365-day outcome, but we don't have enough people that have made it through since we started in April of last year um, to report any any numbers there, but really good numbers. And I'm going to compare that to what the kind of national numbers are in a second. And then just why people are getting out. Some people are relapsing and refusing to come back. Um, We have some people that go to jail and they end up getting incarcerated. We have um, quite a few people, as all of you know, who are on the behavioral health side of things that have mental health complications and serious mental illness, and so some people actually get hospitalized. And then we have lost people, so people have had subsequent overdoses and passed away. But overall, we're very happy with these numbers because there is no other program that does what we're doing And as we write about it and publish in the academic literature, these become the benchmarks of what we would expect other communities to find. There really aren't any numbers out there like this in in the journals. So these are our estimates based on what the literature says. And you could argue plus or minus a few numbers, and it doesn't really matter. These are just ranges. But if you did nothing and you went into no kind of treatment, And an individual basically says, I'm going to cold turkey it, I'm going to sit in my house and do this on my own, there is a 90% chance, 90 plus percent chance based on most numbers, you're going to fall back and you're going to relapse. So a 10% chance of actually staying in treatment. If you get into medication-assisted treatment, based on the literature that we've seen in the journals, it's can range from 40 percent to 60 percent, basically, in terms of what people are reporting on their individual. Um, We just put 50 percent here, so you have about a one in two chance of relapsing and uh, falling out of recovery with medication-assisted treatment only. MAT plus behavioral counseling, this is a more controversial one, because some new articles are coming out, new research that says Um, Even though theoretically, according to SAMHSA, the definition of MAT includes behavioral counseling, it's really not always provided well, so we kept it separately, and some of the research that's coming out now is a little bit questioning the incremental value of counseling over MAT. I don't want to get into that because I firmly believe, we believe, medication plus behavioral plus peer support plus immediate access to treatment saves lives, but... It'll go up, so like 65% chance. What we're establishing here with our, with our work in our first year and a half is that Matt plus counseling plus peer support plus this ongoing daily follow-up that we do. We track people until they drop out or, or they die, and we want to know what's going on. We track everything that goes on with them. So people are calling all the time, and we have about 85%, as I just reported. So this is what we want to do. We... What we want, obviously, everybody in this room, we want every patient that we work with to be saved. We want them to get into treatment, stay into treatment, and be drug-free for the rest of their life. And so there's still, even with what we're doing, there's 15-plus percent that's not explaining what's going on. So there's a lot of room to add components of an intervention and, and do even more. And so that's what we're always looking for. How can we do this better? But this is where we're at today. So, just last slide for me before I hand it over to our... Oh, Google Maps talking. I was like, do you hear that, or is it in my head? <laughs> Somebody's already planning their exit out of the conference room. How do I get out of... <laughs> it's just those back doors. <laughs> so, our, our summary, kind of overall from the program perspective, outreach plus the emergency department is effective at engaging people. The ED has not been the place, as many of you know, to get treatment for opioid or drug dependence and addiction issues. It, you come into the ED and someone that has worked on, in one for a very long time, we don't know what to do. So if it's an acute situation and we save your life, you save your life. But if you want to get started in medication assisted treatment, I'm going to tell you, or, or any kind of treatment program, that the physician will literally walk out of the room. It makes them very uncomfortable. And We want to show that EDs, that emergency departments, have a role in this, and it's not just the psychiatrists and the family medicine people and then the behavioral counseling later on. It could be right there when it's happening. We get them started talking about options, and that's what we want to take away for all of you. There's opportunities for you to work with your emergency departments to say, is this coming in? Are you seeing people come in saying they want to detox? They need help. They had an overdose. If you are, how do we work with you better? because we want to use that point as a a very early um, intercept point. Relative to normal rates of relapse, ours are really high. What we want to do, and and we have a a paper about to come out, we're looking at things over time and how long they stay in treatment and what changes it, and you're going to see some graphs in in one of the articles that we're about to be published. Um, But really, really high rates, five, six, seven times the normal rates, using a model that builds in multiple components. It is it does fall off over time a little bit, but really what we want to do is we want to expand this we want to go statewide. We just received funding from through Texas Health and Human Services and working with UT Austin to train nine communities across Texas more than likely your communities are one of them and we'll be talking to EMS family planning providers and others in your area because we want everybody we want to we want a model that it doesn't have to be our model we want to model like this conceptually in every community across Texas, and where it fits and how you want to customize it, that's perfect, but we want something similar. So we're looking at that, we're building more sites, we're building training, and we want to randomize, and I know all of you who are PhDs, and I know there's NMDs, there's many of you out there, um, we get the best kind of findings when we can say it's been randomized and it wasn't just like the people that showed up here are getting better results, so that's next for us. We have a lot of different programs that are coming up. I have no clock, I have no idea how I did on time, but I'm going to introduce to you our next speaker, who many of you know, Jessica Yeager, who is awesome and is leading all of our peer support service uh, work. And she's gonna come up and talk about what we do for outreach, what this quick response team looks like, and give you some personal stories. So thank you.
8: Can you guys hear me? Yeah, I can hear myself. Okay, good morning family. Um, I'm Jessica Yeager. I'm a peer recovery support specialist through the Houston Recovery Center partnered with UT Health on the HEROES program. Um, I'm also a Star Drug Court uh, graduate and alumni and um, most importantly I'm a woman in long-term recovery and what that means to me is that I have not found it necessary to drink any alcohol, consume any mind-altering substances, or get arrested since January 29, 2016. So I really want to just say thank you to Dr. Langebier, because this is the first program I've ever seen where doctors are actually taking initiative to understand people like me. And when I had an opportunity to work alongside professionals in order to help a crisis in the community, I was all in, all in. So I just want to touch base about um, what a recovery coach is, what our role is, because some people are unaware, unsure, and then I'll go into the outreach piece. So... So what is a recovery coach? A recovery coach is um, a guide and a mentor to assist an individual through their recovery, personal and family recovery. Um, Also, a person uh, to uh, link them to the recovery community, to assist them, um, and also to uh, eliminate environmental um, obstacles and barriers in the community. So the most important role that I have is to Navigate an individual from active addiction to a life of long-term recovery. And whatever that looks like, will knock down barriers and get them in a a pathway to maintain maintain long-term recovery. The importance of a recovery coach. Um, We're highly trained individuals, we're just not recovering uh, individuals. Um, the lived experience is highly important because that's an an, assen- an essential piece of um, the importance of our role. Uh, <clears throat> so we um, have lived experience. We also um, we're very distinct from clinical and case management. And I want to emphasize that because it's so important with the unity of the recovery movement and working side by side with the team. My role as a peer recovery support specialist is to go out on outreach, be relatable to someone who's in active addiction, pull them in and navigate them into services, to counseling, to Medicaid assisted treatment so that they can maintain long-term recovery. Um, And that is highly um, significant to know our roles. And as a team, we wear our hats, and we wear them well, and we work efficiently, and we save a lot of lives in Houston. Also, um, so I'm able to provide um, links to professional treatment. We have a lot of um, professional relations in the community with Santa Maria Hostel, other treatment centers, Senecor, detox facilities housing facilities. These are very important Um, because we're pulling individuals from active addiction. These individuals, most of them have not experienced inpatient treatment or even know what recovery or treatment is. So when we're pulling them in, it's important for me to navigate them essentially to our counselors so they can begin services and also in the community so they can learn tools to maintain their recovery. Uh, Also, the last one is key. My phone rings 24 hours a day, okay? So just before I left my room this morning, I had an individual call me asking for services. Her son is addicted to opioids and is seeking services. Um, Also, while I was here yesterday, we had an individual that lost their life to an opioid overdose that just left inpatient treatment. And the reason why I bring that up is there's a lot of stigma with mat treatment and I just want you to put that in the back of your mind because sometimes abstinence isn't for everybody. Sometimes if mat treatment enables someone to go to work, live a productive life and not die, maybe it works for them. And um, just on that note, you know, I can be a powerful advocate, so I'm going to try to stay in my lane today. But uh, it's I'm sensitive because I deal with these individuals in their worst case scenario. Literally last Tuesday, I went to a house. It looked like a complete uh, abandoned house. Nobody could ever live there. There was a blanket as the door. But I proceeded to knock, anyway, okay? Um, And I found some metal piece out there in the yard that I could knock on. And here came this person out of the house. And she just so happened to be someone who ran from state jail um, and was seeking services. And because I am a Star Drug Court alumni, it put a little bit of hope in her that I could show up and say, look, I was you. So let me help you. And she showed up in our office the next day. <clears throat> but it, it, it's just huge to, to leave options for individuals. So um, a little bit about uh, support specialists is that um, <clears throat> we help individuals overcome obstacles. That's a huge piece. And, and what I mean by that is um, through my lived experience, I've had many obstacles with uh, family court, criminal court, And through my own personal journey, I have created several uh, rapports and bonds with judges, DAs, you name it. So I'm living proof we do recover. And um, I'm able to advocate for individuals and guide them through that process, whether it's CPS, criminal, uh, whatever it may be, so that we can get through that. Um, Let's see. It's definitely important to get connected. Um, Facilitate good decision making. This is huge because when we're coming from active addiction, obviously we don't make the best decisions because I'm coming to look for you. When you land on our list, it's not a good list. You have died and been brought back to life, and I'm coming because I don't want you to take the chance and die. So when I show up at your door, it's, it's a life or death situation. And I can be that one to really navigate and say, look, just trust me in this. Let me, let me love you until you can love yourself again. All you need is willingness. Everything is free. Um, and just allowing us to guide them. <clears throat> um, advocating uh, for self-advocacy. This is very important because I'm a person in long-term recovery. I can't make anybody recover. No one can make me recover. It's very important for me to show them how to be efficient in their own recovery, showing them where the resources are, connecting them to whatever programs are, are good for them or works for them to help them stay sober. <clears throat> so that's a little bit about my role, or as coaches' role. Um, the fun piece. So... This is, I just love my job, you guys. I'm so blessed. I'm just, I love it. So I would love to see this everywhere. Why? Because I have the privilege of working with um, Andrew Kincannon. He's a firefighter with the Houston Fire Department. And also our other recovery coach, Chad. We make a powerful team out there in the community. So every... Monday, we get a, a report from the previous week of all overdoses or anybody who's been administered Narcan. Um, and then we navigate and outreach to the community, community. We, our heroes team, we get the information every Monday and we map it out just like this. So what will happen is, um, there's certain instances Narcan is administered and it's not necessarily an overdose. Um, so what we'll do is we'll go through each narrative, each scenario, and we'll we'll make sure that it's a, a true um, drug overdose or drug-related. And we will map that out and, and be have an effective route so that we can knock it out and, and be efficient for that day. Also, <clears throat> there may be... Um, addresses that come up on our narratives that um, are commercial businesses, bus stops, um, hotels, a lot of hotels. Um, But most importantly, we make initiative to tackle exactly where we need to go efficiently. And this is a, a pretty simple map, but there's times where we have people all over the place, all the way up towards uh, Porter and to the northeast side, many places. Um, and this also shows us where the most overdoses are happening. For myself, I visually know. I know what neighborhoods are getting high the most and where the dope's at. I know all this, right? So my individuals can't tell me um, otherwise because I see this every week. and. Um, There's several situations on outreach that make me so grateful to be clean and sober. I cannot express that to you enough. There is a need so bad out there. And this isn't just affecting opioid users. Cocaine, methamphetamines, young kids below the age of 18 are um, taking Xanax that are counterfeit and laced with fentanyl and dropping dead. There are um, Many people that I come across that say, I'm not an opiate user, but their drugs were laced, and they had no intention of dying and being brought back to life, but this is happening, happening often. <clears throat> and it's hitting schools as well. So when that happens, I feel necessary to go speak with that principal sometimes. <sighs> um, so, this is going to be a little brief video. Can I just click it? So you guys can see us in action.
5: Opioid crisis in Houston knows no It affects every suburb, every race, and every income bracket. But now, a new
3: program developed right here in Houston is getting national attention for how it treats addicts right where they live and use.
5: Health reporter Haley Hernandez talked to a former addict who says this program saved his life, and she's revealing how others can get help.
3: This is one of the low points of opioid addiction. Houstonian Adam Schieffelbein is recording this confessional saying he knows these pills will ruin his life. But we all know what he's about to do anyway.
5: I think this is a moment that a lot of people don't understand. It's like...
3: If he looks like a criminal, it's because he was. Dealing drugs, doing drugs, went to jail, lost relationships, jobs, homes. Six months ago was rock bottom...
0: good boy.
3: But this is him today.
0: I have a house, you know, like I'm not living in the back of a car anymore. I I went and visited my my mom for Christmas. How did
3: he do it? To answer that, you need to meet Jessica Yeager. She knows what it's like to be addicted and desperate to get out of the trenches.
8: I know exactly how you're feeling. I've been there before and let me help you. Let me love you until you can love yourself again. (laughs)
3: She's getting names from the Houston Fire Department of known overdose cases and knocking on their doors. It's part of the program called Heroes, Houston Emergency Opioid Engagement System, started by UT Health Dr. James Langebier.
7: What I saw was there's a huge opportunity where people are coming into the emergency departments across the city and often for overdoses or in detox or they're drug seeking, and we didn't know what to do with them.
3: The problem with going to the hospital is that after they're discharged, they're sent right back here, where they overdosed in the first place.
7: They often get discharged after a couple of hours hours of observation. They're back on the street and we'll see him again the next day.
3: But with heroes, Dr. Langebier says paramedics and recovery coaches like Jessica get them and bring them to rehab. Patients are immediately given buprenorphine, a medication to aid withdrawal symptoms and behavioral counseling.
8: All you have to have is
3: willingness.
4: We haven't provided any other options out there.
3: Last month, while speaking with the U.S. Surgeon General, who openly admits his own brother is in prison for crimes committed while addicted to opioids, he told me this may be the answer to saving lives.
6: It really is a best practice, and I'm glad to see folks are using it in Houston.
3: Dr. Langebier says one in three patients they approach agree to join the program. Adam still can't believe how quickly it helped him change his life. When you showed up to meet Jessica, were you using that day?
0: Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. No, no day was started without some, some form of opiate.
3: But the day he joined HEROES, was the last time he
4: used there was no oh it's gonna take a minute or you know you're gonna have to wait for a bed to become available
3: he was given a prescription a place to live and a path to sobriety
0: i have my life back you know like i'm actually living the life that i feel like i was intended to live
3: While the program connects the service to people who are admitted to the ER for a suspected overdose, there are ways you can contact them if you know someone in need of help. I've put the details on ClickToHouston.com. You'll find it under the health section. I'm health reporter Haley Hernandez, KPRC, Channel 2 News.
0: Opioid crisis.
8: Oh, okay. So... Thank you guys. Um, Adam, he was living in the back seat of his car. He actually posted a post on a recovery coach resource Facebook page and said, "Hey, I know this guy. Um, he's about this old. He's you know describes this individual." So I jump on there and I say, "All right, have him call me." And uh, there's this delay, you know, and finally he's like, "Well, my friend, da da da." And uh, so he finally calls me and he says, "Okay, it's me." And I said, all right, come to the office. Just like that, we had him um, seen by a doctor, started uh, buprenorphine, Suboxone. Um, I was able to navigate him into uh, sober living that same day so that he could adjust from active use to the Suboxone. And now he's living an awesome, productive life, um, doing extremely well. And that is the importance. um, I can't express to you enough the need for resources for those that are on Suboxone. And that's, I'm just gonna be real with you because I am in the streets every week, I deal with real live people that are suffering from substance use disorder, and if we do not navigate resources for them, the, the longevity of long-term recovery is not going to exist. If anybody's in recovery, we need to we we have to have a safe environment to grow. We can't just be given medication and saying, good luck. It doesn't work that way. But there's huge barriers for me as a peer specialist because we can't take them, they're on mat. We can't take them, we can't take them. How in the world do you think the opioid epidemic will ever get less intense or less people dying if we do not provide resources for these people suffering from opioid, opioid use disorder. All right, time
1: to take
8: this yes. So it's it's frustrating for me so much so that you know I have certain partnerships in the community where um, they will work with me to have them housed there, but it costs a lot of money. Nothing is state-funded. That's a battle of its own. You guys know that. Um, But if you guys would like to help, on our website, you can go to Donate Now. You can donate anonymously and all that. Anything you donate specifically helps that piece to help me navigate those individuals into housing so that they can move forward and live a productive life. So... This graph here is very interesting because I, I just wanted to emphasize the role of the Peer Recovery Support Specialist throughout the entire recovery journey. So we work with the individual from the moment I find them uh, on outreach and active addiction to their utmost success story and their happily ever after having kids and in college, or whatever they choose to do. <clears throat> so. Just to break it down a little bit, pre-contemplation. This is a lot of the time where um, I received the overdose report. This is when um, an individual has escaped death, you know, and, and the sick mind tells us, well, I didn't die, I can do one more. Um, so, <clears throat> contemplation. When we show up at your house, knocking on your door, well, obviously, I, I think I might have something going on if these people are knocking on my door saying, you need some help, because you just died. <clears throat> uh, preparation. At that point when we are with the individual in their home, and the most awesome piece about being a peer is I can read right through them. And a lot of times, they'll tell me, oh, well, I just took one Tylenol all three. <laughs> well, I've took a lot of pills in my life, and um, that's not gonna kill you. So, you know, honestly, they they get real, and they say, "Okay, I have a heroin problem, and I'm so thankful you showed up at my house. Please help me." And um, it's so beautiful to see, to be able to help people instantly. I mean, instantly. And <clears throat> It's just a beautiful God God thing. Anyways. Uh, um, okay, so action. Action is they've, they've come in, they're on their medicated assisted treatment, they're going to their one-on-one counseling, they're coming to peer support groups, they're being involved, you're getting blown up by me weekly, and you're engaged, you're making moves. You're really trying to get this thing, get down to the core issues. And also... We have uh, community providers we work with, and it's individually based. Some people, just like Dr. Langbeer was saying that some people might be on mat for a small period of time. Some people are six six months, some are six to twelve. Some uh, may want intensive outpatient on top of our program because they know their own addiction. And um, we will work with the community to provide exactly what they need. If our program, if they're just not quite getting it and they want inpatient, we still work alongside with that individual while they're an inpatient. We never leave them, ever. I take uh, recovery support groups into, the, um, into Santa Maria Hostel in the State Funded Women's Facility in Houston. Um, I also take a peer support group into Angela's house in Houston. Those individuals come straight from prison to Angela's house. <coughs> uh, maintenance. So staying plugged in is essential, practicing skills, coping strategies um, to maintain long-term recovery. Obviously, they told me one thing, is that I had to change everything, or one thing, and that was everything, right? So in the beginning, that seems overwhelming for some, but, you know, um, we take it day by day, and um, just staying plugged in and keeping individuals. If we see someone kind of slipping back, you know, I can say we have a team that works in unity. There's nobody siloing in the heroes. We are a a family, a team effort. We're about saving lives. And if I don't answer, if the other coach doesn't answer, Andrea will answer, Simone, somebody's gonna answer. So, I did not mention relapse on this last stages of change. And that's controversial for some, but as a coach that's so passionate, I wanna try to uh, really emphasize all the tools and everything you need so that doesn't have to happen. But reality is, it can be a part of recovery and sometimes that does happen and it doesn't matter where you're at. If you're actively using, if you're 10 years clean, I'm going to meet you where you're at. There's a no judgment zone at all here. So there was a study done and uh, on peer support and it showed that individuals that rel- relapsed, um, over 77 percent of them reached out to their recovery coach other than a counselor or a sponsor. And that's huge. That's over three, fourths. Of the, you know, it's huge. And so that's why we're so effective. I literally can uh, reach out to Andrea or our other counselors on our team, and we work in unity, like a fine spinning wheel or whatever you want to call it. Uh, When an individual is struggling, I can reach out to my team, and we work efficiently in getting them plugged back in. Um, Also, the length of time um, of not returning or returning to recovery, 62% um, returned in a month or less and 15 in four or more months. So, with peer support, six months or less, those individuals, if they slip up, come right back. And I can tell you that from experience. There have been individuals who ended up on my report that are already enrolled in heroes. They get um, in that mindset of, I got this, the ego starts playing, I'm running the show, and boom. But the thing is, I still go to their house and I say, I love you, we're here. We're not here to judge you. Come home, go to counseling, call your counselor. Um, okay, so there's some positive effects to um, for recovery. A coach um, <clears throat> is a reminder of how they were in early recovery, provides a sense of purpose in giving back for the recovery, knowing that, hey, if she did it, I can do it, um, <clears throat> emphasizes the importance of working in their own recovery and self-care. I emphasize all the time that I'm one bad decision away from changing my clean date. I'm no different. Um, Strengths their personal recovery capital, increases empathy for peers, and also, very importantly, um, enhances openness to different pathways other than 12 steps and abstinence. And that's the biggest piece, is that a lot of individuals, when they step into this program, they start hearing everything from the community. Oh, you're not sober. <clears throat> you're, that's just a crutch. How's that? All this crap. Ugh, it's frustrating. <laughs> so here I am with 400 individuals, like, listen here, if it's working for you, who cares what they say? Oh, so the best and most awesome part of uh, being a coach is being living proof. So. In 2016, I met my maker. I ran out of moves. And I show this to my individuals every time because they see me, they see success, but they don't see where I came from. Here, I was hopeless. I didn't have a way out. And it was by community resources and Harris County Star Drug Court that even enabled me to visually see a pathway to recovery. They were the pivot point in my journey and changed my life forever. And I want to close by that is that I'm here today, a successful woman in long-term recovery because there were no silos. It was a community effort of providers on every part of the the whole deal in my journey. And with that, thank you for letting me share.
5: That's so nice.
9: Good morning. In hindsight, I should have gone before Jessica because the bar is so high now. <laughs> but at least you guys are all awake. I know you got the energy, so um, My role here today is I'm going to kind of take a bit of a step back from everything that we've talked about so far. So we've talked about the model, we've talked about kind of some of the the rationale behind why we've started the things the way that we have started them. And I want to kind of build some of that psychological, um, some of the criminological, some of the pieces that um, also are driving what it is that we're doing and also talk a little bit about our partnership with the uh, law enforcement Houston Police Department. Um, So starting off, for those of you um, in this field, most of us know stuff like this, but um, motives for using substances in the first place, and I think this is very important. So that idea of early use is usually based on the pleasurable effects. It's fun, it's exciting, it's new, it's novel, my friends are doing it. Um, There's not a lot of consequences yet, you know. And then continued use, it, it switches gears a little bit. And so now it's using because you're avoiding the negative effects. And so it was really nice to kind of be checked out from reality and not feel for a while. Um, I don't want to be in withdrawal. I know that that's going to feel really rough. Um, So that continued use now is more of an avoidance of the things that we don't want to deal with anymore. And then in later addiction, we know once it's really kind of, you know, stuck its heels in and, and got stuck there, it's now using despite the effects. And so it's no longer because of something it's giving me. It's because I don't have any other choices left. And so it's it's used that term, you know, hijack the brain. It's taken over our ability to look at things rationally, to look at things in a way that makes sense to an outsider or a non-user. And so it's that idea of you like the drug less, but now you need it more. And I think the video that we had showed from that news clip, um, Adam's own personal, you know, chronicle that he was taking pictures and videos of, He sat there and he talked about that and he said that, you know, I don't want to do this, I don't like this, and I have no other choice left. And that really highlights what it is to be at that point where it's no longer casual use, where it's no longer dependence, but it's actual addiction at this point. Um, Another way to kind of visualize it, so any of you that are interested in how the brain works, so dopamine in the brain um, is one of the main chemicals that's associated with using substances. Um, It's the feel-good chemical. It makes us, you know, when we're happy, it's it's something that, that feels good. And so if you're looking at this graph here, you kind of have this first spike up here. First time you use a substance, that dopamine is through the roof. It's higher than anything else that you're doing. It's not, you know, it's much better than, you know, food, sex, relationships, all these types of things. It's just off the charts. And then what's interesting, though, about it is after you have that first use, your brain doesn't go back to what we would consider that normal or common or average level of dopamine. Think about it in a way, if I come home every night from work and somebody has grocery shopped and cooked me dinner, I didn't stop for fast food on the way home, I didn't go to the grocery store, I stopped doing that because every night I come home and someone's done it for me. That's how your brain's dealing with dopamine. So if you've artificially created that spike, your brain stops doing its job. It's like, I don't have to do that anymore. It's not important. And so it tanks, and it goes, you know, approaching zero. And we don't like that feeling. Lack of the feel-good chemicals isn't fun. And so then there's that second use. And then over time, you kind of build this tolerance. You're never going to create that that first spike ever again because the novelty is no longer there. Your brain experienced something for the first time, it can't do that again. And so understanding that piece, when we talk about chasing that first high, there's actually a biological component that goes along with that. You can't ever recreate something new because you've already experienced. And so you're chasing something that biologically you cannot recreate again. And so you're in this level of tolerance, you're not getting as much out of it, you're having to use more to try and create what's next. And now you're using just to feel almost normal, just to be able to function in your day-to-day. And then you're using to be 50% of, like, well, I just don't want to be, you know, feeling as worse as it could be. And so ultimately you're in this situation where you're just trying to avoid the quicksand. And there's an analogy here of if I'm running through the jungle and somebody's chasing me and I know they want to kill me, and I fall and and end up in this big pool of quicksand, and I'm sinking, and I know the quicksand's going to kill me, but there's a person on the, on the side who also wants to kill me. They're going to throw me a vine. That vine's going to be covered in thorns, and it's going to have animal waste and, and dirt and all this stuff. And if I grab it and wrap it around, I know it's going to cut me. I'm going to bleed. It's going to hurt. It's going to get infected. And even if I make it to the shore, there's still a person there that's trying to kill me. And that's addiction. And so even though we know that that substance isn't going to do any good, we still grab onto it, we grab onto that vine because it's survival. Because our brain has adjusted to thinking that if I don't use, I will die. And I have no other choice but to grab that vine, pull up to the ledge, and I may or may not even survive it once I get there. So when we talk about motivation, a lot of our model is built on motivation. Um, it's different for everyone. It's it's shaped by events, um, things that are going on around you, intrinsic and ex- e- extrinsic. So do I care because it's my values, it's things that are important to me, or do I care because it's, it's praise, it's fame, it's money, it's something coming from outside? What's important here is it's not the actual event that motivates, it's the perception of the event. And so all of us perceive things differently. The things that I want and motivate me to do things are, are different than maybe what motivates you to move forward. So when we're talking about motivation when it comes to substance use and treatment, we want to be mindful of um, that that's different for everyone. So everyone has kind of those different drives of what's going to get them there, but there are also some patterns in that of, of seeing what types of things do motivate. And usually it comes down to that idea of a recognition of a problem. And so usually something is going on. When things are going well and there's no consequences and I don't have to deal with any pain, I keep doing what I'm doing, but once I get to a point where there's some consequences, there's some pains, there's some things that I didn't anticipate. Well, now all of a sudden, maybe I'm starting to evaluate of like, huh, this isn't as easy as it used to be. This isn't as fun as it used to be. Now I'm having to deal with all this other stuff. And so this idea of things getting to a point where it's uncontrollable. Sometimes we call this rock bottom. Sometimes um, You know, we just get into this place where it's that loss of control that can be an eye-opener. You know, so the little light bulb up there of like, huh, this isn't working anymore. What am I going to do with that? And so to kind of bring that back to what our model is based on, we're basing that on periods of crisis motivation. So if I end up in the emergency department, if I've got Jess and our paramedic knocking at my door, if the police department's knocking at my door, talk about loss of control and that idea that things are getting a little out of hand and this isn't what I signed up for, this isn't what I was expecting. And so when we talk about motivation being paired with these types of of situations, it's very real, because now something's no longer working. And now I might see that, and now I might be open to doing something different and going into treatment. And so I want to give a little more of the background of kind of the overlap with crime and substance use, um, since I'm going to be talking about our partnership with HPD. So we know that substance users commit disproportionate amounts of crime, and that criminal offenders are disproportionately likely to use substances. Some broad numbers here, 80% of uh, incarcerated individuals um, are there as a result of alcohol or drugs, either directly or indirectly, um, based on the lifestyle that they're living. 60% test positive for substance use upon arrest. So at arrest and booking and they do a screen, more than half of the people are registering as someone who's struggling with substance use. And if you want to get clinical, at least 50% of incarcerated individuals would meet that criteria for a substance use disorder and are clinically addicted. Um, Any of the criminal justice folks here are going to recognize this as our age crime curve. And what this is looking at here is kind of your rates of criminal behavior and then the age of the lifespan across the bottom. Obviously, it doesn't go all the way up. Um, The very top line that goes kind of up during the teen years and then it kind of starts to come down in like early to mid-20s, kind of starts to level out. Those are your average rates of criminal behavior if you look at our national population. And if you think about it you know, just from your own experiences, teen years, adolescence, it's when your brain's still developing, you're making some choices, you're trying to really understand how the world works. Um, And then a lot of people age out of crime or mature out of it or figure it out and don't engage in it anymore. But there is a a criminologist, Terry Moffat, who decided that that one average curve wasn't capturing the whole picture and wanted to look at um, some of the different clusters of people and rather than saying we're all in the same box, there might be something different going on. So you'll see another kind of short up spike and quick down. So um, these are your adolescent limited offenders. And so these are your teenagers. Hanging out with friends, making some bad choices, peer pressure. They do some things, but then very quickly they realize that's not working. Let's not do that anymore, and they get right out of it. And so those who you know engage in that isolated delinquency when they're young, they get out of it, and, and they desist from continued use. Um, now you have your lifetime persistent offenders. That's your line on the bottom. So it kind of is a little slower to increase and then it kind of hangs out there, and then it never really dips all the way gone. And so it's, it's still there, and it's just ongoing. Like, there's no in and out, I figured it out, it just continues on. And the biggest difference here is substance use. So when somebody is involved in both substance use and delinquent behavior, this kind of criminal um, history continues, and it doesn't go away as quickly. And so when we're looking at ways to combat substance use and delinquency, we've gotta look at both of these pieces and being mindful that somebody who is just um, struggling with substance use disorder has different needs and has different things going on than someone who's dealing with substance use disorder and is engaging in delinquent behavior or criminal behavior. So when we look at kind of the model, and we've we've touched on this a little bit, the idea of uh, justice involved intercept opportunities, and so there's lots of places where we're building in programs to try and get people, um, you know, screened and assessed throughout the criminal justice process. So sometimes it's happening at arrest and booking and they're doing some screens there, they're figuring out what needs are are there for someone or when they're initially detained. Could happen in the courts, it could happen once they're incarcerated. Um, It happens when re-entry is about to, to come up so they're getting ready to be released back into the community. What are we doing with them? Where are we referring them? What's that continuum of care look like? And then your community corrections, so people on parole and probation, you know, so you've got all these opportunities to to potentially provide care. And what's changing and what our model is looking at is finding basically a new first intercept. So intercept zero here. So rather than waiting until they've been formally introduced into the criminal justice system, providing an opportunity to have them like deflected entirely away from the criminal justice experience, And so not officially booking them, not officially putting them through this whole process, not waiting to provide care and treatment, but doing it from that very first interaction. And so our partnership with uh, the Houston Police Department is based on this idea of it's possible for a law enforcement or a first responder to show up at somebody's house to have that conversation and to decide, hey, this isn't something that needs to be arrested and just locked up and throw away the key. This is something that we can do something about. And as an officer, I know the resources. I know heroes exist. I'm not just like, hey, you should get some help here's some hotline numbers, good luck, I'm saying, hey, I know someone that is actually capable of helping you today. Like, let me connect with them. Let me get them on the phone. Let's have a conversation. Let me find a way to not just throw you into the system and let the system figure it out. Let me give you another option, and here's something that we can do that's real and exists in the Houston community. And so it builds back into that idea of the same-day initiation of treatment. We're capitalizing on that moment of motivation. You know, so police might be at your door. It doesn't necessarily mean that there's not still a chance there to be willing and to be motivated to get into treatment and to make that change. And then we provide that holistic approach so that we're not just saying, here's one thing that you can do. Here's everything that we can do. And so not only are we gonna get you connected today with medication, we're gonna get you some coaches, we're gonna get you some counseling, we're gonna do a lot of these things for you, and then we're gonna assess what other needs you have and connect you into the community. So it's not just one and done, it's here's everything that we can um, do to help. And the idea there is to you know, reduce and eliminate continued involvement with the criminal justice system. And so not only are we helping people, we're changing the game of how we treat substance use in the community. And so that idea of how change occurs, and so this whole process, this whole map of what we're talking about with the way that our program is structured, the rationality behind how our program is structured, the ultimate thing we're trying to accomplish is change. And Jess said, you know, the only thing you have to do is change everything. And that's an intimidating thought. Imagine someone coming up to you and saying, hey, everything you thought, everything you believe, everything you choose, everything about you, you don't do that anymore. Do all this stuff instead. And if you really think about how intimidating that can be, um, then you can have some empathy for a process of someone who's in addiction and doesn't understand how to change everything. And we're wired to want to find that path of least resistance. You know, So I picked this little image here, that idea of like the blue line up and over, like, oh yeah, that's all I got to do. I just do this one thing and I'm all set. And the reality is, is that lasting change means you got to go through the maze. You've got to change those attitudes, those beliefs, those values. You've got to change how you look at the world, how you think about the world, how you choose to behave in the world. All this stuff has to be addressed. And the medication's not gonna do that for you. So even though the medication is gonna help stabilize, it's gonna get you out of active use, um, it's gonna give you some of that hope of, hey, I don't have to wake up and just feel miserable every day. Maybe I can wake up and feel okay and do the things that I'm supposed to do. Um, Then we can start doing some of this work. And so we've incorporated ongoing counseling, um, a clinical component into the HEROES program because we know that that's where the real change happens. Getting you, you know, having Narcan save your life, getting you connected to medication, these are all important steps. And the real treatment is that hard work of learning how to go through the maze and having someone help navigate, having someone to sit there and and get into, you know, your history and what you've been through and your experiences and how do you take that and change some of that. Um, So primarily, you know, we're looking from a cognitive behavioral standpoint with our therapeutic model. And it's based on that idea that we have to change our thoughts to change our behaviors. But we also don't limit it just to that. We know that general cognition therapy, how the brain works, helping people understand that is important. We absolutely include the idea of trauma-informed care into what we're doing. We know that the majority, if not all, of the people that we're treating have a history of trauma, and we don't want to undermine that. We, we want to find a way to help treat that. Um, you know, We embrace humanistic approaches. We embrace a lot of you know, motivational interviewing, these types of things. So it's not just one thing. It really is individualizing that treatment to whoever it is that we're working with because they're all going to come with different backgrounds and different stories that we want to help figure out. And then continuing on that idea of what motivation looks like throughout treatment, we're also aware that it's very dynamic. So what got you into treatment? Six weeks later, only 30% relevant. Six weeks is not that long. So when we talk about these critical events that are bringing you into the radar of heroes and bringing you into treatment, a few weeks later, that starts to go away. So it's that idea that pain is a motivator and pain can you know, motivate us to act and wanna do something. And then the flip side of that is pain has no memory. And so over time, those things that were painful, we forget a little bit. They're not as relevant. It's not as as obvious. And so that's when we're prone to potentially fall back to our old ways of doing things, our old ways of coping. Only six weeks. It's barely important anymore. So just knocking at your door, the paramedic reading you all the different ways that you physically died in the paramedic report, Few weeks later that's not as relevant anymore and that's just how we're wired is we are wired to not have pain be something that we remember so with that in mind we want to make sure that our program doesn't just keep that piece but then we incorporate other things that will continue to motivate And so the utility of the treatment environment, so what we're doing, the process we have of continuing to help people, winning them over to buy in of like, hey, this process works, this protocol works, I see other people who are further along, it's working for them characteristics of treatment staff and providers. You know, Jess calls us a family and and we very much are. I mean, we all work together, we're all helping. I've never worked with a group of people where everyone is 150% into what they're doing. Sometimes in this field you do get people who are just showing up for the paycheck, or check in boxes or just trying to do what they need to do and get out of there. We have the passion to be able to sit there, connect with people, build a rapport and let them know that we're not going anywhere. When we do an intake with them, I make sure, you know, they're getting this contact sheet with all of our names, phone numbers, emails. That we're your team now, and you don't have to do recovery on your own. All of us sitting here around the table are now part of your journey. And we're going to bug you. We're going to connect with you. We're going to get you, you know, whatever it is that you're trying to find. And getting them to feel that. And so that rapport that they build with us is important. They feel comfortable. They don't feel judged. They don't feel shame. If they make a mistake or have a setback, they're not afraid to reach out or afraid of being discharged. We don't do it that way because we know it's a process and that we're signing on for that journey with them. And so helping them build social support. So not only us, sometimes we are the only social support they have. They come in with nothing. They've lost their families. They've lost their friends. They don't have anyone to rely on. We play that role, and we want to help them build more of those types of people. So building that recovery capital. And then that idea of making sure that they believe that they can do it. So we're very much strengths-based. We want them to feel that it's possible. We want to encourage them. We want to celebrate things. I think one of the biggest rewards in this field is, you know, in this job I get to see them on day one, actively using, coming into the program at their bottom, and then I get to see them, you know, at day 31, still sober. I get to see them at day 61, you know, hey, guess what, I called my mom and I haven't talked to her in you know, a couple of years. I get to see him at six months where they're like, I've enrolled in school, I'm doing this. Get to see him at graduation. We're starting to see these things happening and remembering like I was here when he had nothing and now I'm here and look at how far he's come and being a part of that journey is what keeps us going. And so we're very much different in that idea of you don't come to us for like eight weeks and then you graduate and we move you on you're joining on to have somebody in your corner to be there when it's hard and to be there to celebrate when it's good. And so with that, I mean, I think you've gotten a good overview of kind of what our model is, what types of things have gone into it. We're very grateful for all of the partners that we have When we present um, at these types of conferences and other places, a lot of the barriers I hear of like, how did you get into the emergency department? How did you get them to buy in? How did you get HPD on board? How did you get HFD on board? And I think that is one of the biggest barriers, and it's the most important one to try and figure out. And a lot of that starts with communication and conversation. And getting somebody to have that conversation, to stand at the table with you to discuss obviously the shared population that all of these different agencies are dealing with start with one partnership, build on another one. We didn't have all this from the get-go. It started with the emergency department, and then we added the fire department, and then we got the police department. So don't try and jump to the finish line. Start with some small connections, and I think that that's gonna be the the main key in what helps us continue to not be siloed, start to come together, and build this new movement of it being a coordinated care plan to help people in recovery.